Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, I want to share with you something that somebody um, came up and said to me the other day about uh, about the podcast. Said, oh, dear. Um, yeah. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. It's fine. Don't worry. Don't brace. Said, uh, you haven't talked about gardening for a while. And the the tone was not one of great relief and thankfulness, but there was a certain kind of mild regret. So I'm going to leap on that, I'm afraid. Yeah. Go with and, it. How's it um, going in, in the Dallas garden? It's going, it's, well, it's, it's always up and down, isn't it? It's always interesting. But I'm going to tell you um, a thing which you and other gardeners will um, understand i've been nurturing a blue himalayan poppy mechanopsis it's one of those things which is like if you can do it you're supposed to be you know a proper gardener because they're notoriously difficult they're very very beautiful light blue poppies um and they're very fussy i mean you you know all about them don't you not in the kind of detail that you clearly do of course instantly i'm having to stop myself googling them and ordering seeds as we speak do it. which wouldn't yeah, be yeah, very yeah. professional tell, yeah. us, tell us <laughs> maybe when we're finished tell us more <laughs> no, gardens wait for no man uh tell us more about so they're very uh, very beautiful it. i did cheat i didn't do it didn't do it from seed i got some i got some plugs i think maybe i can't remember when i got them either early spring or late autumn and i've been coddling them frankly mm. as though they were a kind of 19th century novelist in a Swiss sanatorium. Do you know what I mean? I've been really <laughs> spoiling them. And where have you been coddling? Um, inside, do you mean? No, not really, because they need to be quite cool. They mustn't get too hot. They mustn't get too wet. They mustn't get too cold. They're alpine, really, and right. I'm not giving them alpine conditions. Anyway, but when they flower, they're fantastically beautiful and very difficult. Two of them already died. I think I had four. Maybe I had five. Three of them died. I got two or three which are still alive. This doesn't sound very impressive. And then one which looked as though it was about to start flowering. And I was just so excited. And I've been taking care of it, even more care than usual, talking to it, you know, moving it around by 30 degrees so it gets the right amount of sunlight, that sort of thing. Uh, and then it flowered. And it was very beautiful, but it was white. It oh. It was a blue poppy. It was a white poppy. Oh. And how did you... 
How did you feel? I mean, was there a disappointment or did you think, no, we've come this far and this is what you want to be? You are a white poppy. There you go. That I did both of those. First of all, I just thought, come on. <laughs> that is not what you look like on the packet. <laughs> and then that's what gardens do. They confound your expectations. And it was actually rather beautiful. It was a beautiful white poppy, which lasted about 15 minutes before it gave up the ghost. But I think there's a, probably a moral in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, just take... Well, I have to say, it is... I don't know how it's been... You, you're in the UK, and I know you've had more of a heatwave than, shall we say, we up, have up here in the Irish Hills, where it's it's got a kind of... I mean, we may take our cardigans off. We're at that stage of heatwave, and everyone is, you know, everyone is actually feeling very hot. But I know you've had it really mm. hot. Has that been... Have you just been watering incessantly? A bit, though I don't like to do it too much. But yes, I have. I've been... The hydrangeas, because clues in the mm. name the nice mm. thing about them is that they just flop as soon as they've had enough they just actually droop so I pay them attention and everything I try not to do to do too much because then you have to do it all the time that's probably yeah. probably why half of it's died yeah that's true well I, I must say there's even been a little bit of watering around here because it's been it's been an unusually dry patch for Ireland but I've also had a, a very fertile patch in terms of uh house guests and my house has been pretty much a rotating cast of visitors for about two weeks. And I finally drove the last one to the airport a couple of days ago. And I came back absolutely exhausted and thought I would might just lie on the sofa in a darkened room, weeping gently. Mm. And then I thought, no, I won't. I went out and sort of stress and exhaustion planted 15 Tigridia pavonias, which I have oh. been nurturing myself in the greenhouse uh, from bulb for what feels like forever. And the, as you know, it's when you're doing the hardening off that you think these plants get far more attention than I will probably ever yes. get in my whole life. <laughs> I have now pl I planted them all in a sort of frenzy and thus far one is flowering. And so... Well, that's very exciting. That's, that's a win. There is that thing where... You know, when they flower and then uh, this is not a very technical term garden wise, and then they close up if the sun goes in. And I always think, oh, come on. If we all closed up whenever the sun went in, we'd get nowhere. Um, so, yes, one does have a slightly fractious relationship with plants. But this week it's midsummer, isn't it? You're wearing midsummer mm, yes, now. It is. So we're at, yeah, we're exactly. at the high, the high season of it. And speaking of that, we are in the season of summer holidays. And coming up on this week's show, suntan lotion, flip flops and banana daiquiris at the ready. It is time for summer reading. And we go on another sort of wild ride in search of the missing crypto queen. Now, it's that time of year when, despite flight cancellations, heat waves and rail strikes, our thoughts turn to hanging around at Heathrow or Paddington for four to six hours and then having to stay inside all day because we've got heat stroke. Or alternatively, stretching out on the silver sands in front of an azure sea, banana daiquiri in one hand and Herodotus in the original in the other. Whichever way it cashes out, you're going to need something to read. So we asked some of our wonderful writers what they're packing in their designer holdalls and little bags for life this year. Here to help us rummage through their luggage is Toby Lishtig, fiction and politics editor of the TLS. Thanks for joining us, Toby. Hello, thank you for having me as ever. Well, we can gang up now and together we can have a very exclusive talk to the first person on the summer books reading list who is none other than Alex Clark. It's a How bit of a cheat. That? It's a bit of a cheat, this, isn't it? So <laughs> well, we've got... I, I thought you were going to say a coup. I, I think say... it's a coup that we've yes, got. Yes, quite so, Toby. Uh, I, I don't I don't open my raffia bag for everyone uh, but I have to say that I'm first on the list I think uh, because of the alphabet it's always it's always I think it's an alphabetical order and it's always good to have a name quite up the top I don't think it's in order of importance I will say when you do these things we all know this you're absolutely terrified and you think well I really you know there are luminaries being asked to pick their reading and I'm really glad I don't know what their things are it's a sort of race to the top of the kind of obscurity chart sometimes isn't it <laughs> no and i mean nobody says i will you know immediately go to the airport bookshop and buy the first thing with gold letters i can see and I would you didn't say that either i Alex, didn't did say you? that and i i simply 
I don't find any holiday like that complete without a trip to the travel exclusive section with the great big books. I just, it's just cheerful, isn't it? Buying a book at the, at the airport, but no, I didn't. You're absolutely right. Uh, no, it, you is, would like, it is cheerful. You would you like have, to you, have, you have chosen a great big book though, nonetheless. I've chosen okay. an enormous book. I started off with Pogma Home by Patrick McCabe, which, well, what can we say? It's a, it's a kind of family story but it is a novel in verse. And it's about a family of Irish emigres and their life in London told over many years. Now, the rather delightful thing when somebody says, what are you going to read is you can't be expected to be super well-versed in it because it's what you're taking, not what you've already read. So I am going to tell you that I'm excited to know how it's unfold, going to unfold, but I don't know that yet. What I do know is it's big, it's in verse, and it's about the Irish in Britain over the kind of last half of the 20th century and, and, and this century. David Collard reviewed it for the TLS last month. I think it was in the May, the 20, 20th issue, something like that, um, and was very uh, in favour of it, full of praise. So um, you, you listeners could, could look up that review as well. I would, I would also come up with a, a little side thing, which I, I don't really know how to say this without sounding, uh, well, frankly, like the sort of landed gentry, which I'm not. But I have a man that helps with my field because I've got well, a field. A, that sounds exactly it, it, it like the landed absolutely sounds like a Jim, Jim Carner. And what that actually translates to is, can you help me fight back an acre of hawthorns and brambles? Actually, what that really means. But he is the most extraordinary reader. And he came, he saw it, this. He often comes in and we have a chat about books, always lending me books. And I lent him Pogue Mahone before I had a chance to read it because he was so excited to see it there. And he says it's absolutely brilliant. So David uh, Collard and Neil, my field man, have given it the thumbs up. So I'm hoping I will too. There's no higher praise. And do you want to just re remind us what Pogue Mahone means? Am I allowed to? Well, I think so. Or you could do you could do as kind of a gentler version. I should say, well, it, it means kiss my ass. There's no TLS, TLS listeners don't, <laughs> don't can handle that gentility. Yeah. No, they're fine. They can handle, they can handle that. I've also chosen just very briefly All Our Yesterdays by Natalia Ginsberg, who's a writer I really, really love. And Invisible Child, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Andrea. Elliot and actually this is a hay thing Lucy you'll remember yes, we met remember. her at hay and she talked so vividly about this this kind of mammoth work of non-fiction that she mm. spent spent years putting together a feat of reportage really uh, about the homeless children of Brooklyn that I thought well that's something I'm going to read because one of the things I suppose about reading when you, at your leisure is it's really nice to have a kind of balance of stuff and that often includes for me fiction and non-fiction yeah yeah no and it sounds like a, a an amazing work it's kind of um what it's kind of it what do you call it it's like embedded reporting as it were it's yes, in depth yes. sort of reporting yes and it and it is very big and I do like a very big book to read at my leisure don't you yes it's it, well especially if you're not the sort of person I'm actually very bad I probably shouldn't admit this I'm not very good at taking care of books very well my book's tend to look a bit battered and rubbish and I don't mind that because I think they look loved and lived in so as long as you don't you know as long as you don't need your book to stay pristine I love having a, 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 mm. a great big book to lug around and then you spill things on it and you know it gets trodden on or something yeah and you get bits of sand in it you, you, you want that when you pick up your books years later to remember you know what it was you stained them with and where you were with them I think it's really important actually yeah I, I, I think so did we did we notice any trends or any themes emerging this year, do we think, in what in what people are choosing? I think you you've started one, Alex, because quite a lot of people were talking about Natalia Ginsburg, it seemed to me. Yes, yes. Caroline uh, Moorhead, I think, who's also recommended Janet Malcolm's Reading Chekhov, which I, I thought, right, I must get that for my own list. But yes, she she recommended. I mean, I think people are really interested in rediscovery, aren't they? Is that something that that you've found, Toby? Yes, rediscoveries and sort of old, old classics that they've been meaning to read for a long time. So um, I know Serena Dumitrescu has um, tipped a book that I'd, I'd never heard of by Matteo Caragiale, Rakes of the Old Court, which is a Romanian classic about men drinking and gambling in pre-war Bucharest. Sounds utterly brilliant. So I think, yes, those books that we've been meaning to catch up on for many years and also reissues as well. I think, yeah, that, that tends to be quite a holiday theme, doesn't it? Yes, and there were different attitudes um, because I think, well, we do summer books every year and 
uh, for the past couple of years, uh, people haven't been moving around very much uh, at all, been or been kind of worried about it if they were. And there was a different attitude here. Some people were saying, "Okay, I'm going to zip around as much as I can." One of our contributors has already been up the side of Mount Etna and told us what book she was she was reading. Um, and some people saying, "I'm going to stay put. I'm going to stay put, and I've got all these books lined up to read." There's kind of different vibes out there, aren't there? So I think there was probably last year when people were doing even more staying put, I think there was kind of more of a need to be transported, wasn't there, by the books themselves. Whereas I've noticed in this selection, there is there is more sense of people actually being able to go on holiday this year, which is nice. Not everyone, but most people. Yeah. So, Toby, whose bag of books would you like to just quietly make off with if you're mm. standing waiting for your luggage? You just sneak off with it. Just sneak off at the airport. Um, well, that is a good question. Possibly Claire Loudon, partly because I like her dedication to oeuvre. So she's basically, she said she's been having a Mary McCarthy-ish May. Um, I mean, I like the idea of that to start with. Um, she's read her intellectual memoirs and then uh, her, de uh, her debut novel, The Company She Keeps, and she's going to carry on with McCarthy. Not a writer I know, I mean, I know a bit about her, but I've read very little of her. So she's going to read a biography seeing Mary Plain by Francis Kiernan and then Mary McCarthy's novel The Group which I've always been meaning to read and I think I think it's a sort of a jealousy thing I mean you know we can all do what we want obviously but I find with my job as fiction editor I tend to sort of read relatively widely um, in terms of the new novels coming in and you know I sometimes have uh, opportunity to catch up on those books I've always been meaning to read but I very rarely have the chance or rather I re very rarely make the time to actually really dive into a, a whole catalogue of books by a single author. And in my fantasy holiday or my fantasy desert island by myself with my gym shirt. <laughs> by by myself all by my, Did I say by myself? <laughs> That's very revealing. You yeah. did. My great, great asperity, yeah. really, didn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Force. Yeah. Entirely alone, left to my own devices, <laughs> I would like to dive in and spend a month, maybe four months, I don't know, with Mary McCarthy. Um, and I'm, then, a bit, know, I'm a bit worried, though, because you did say you hadn't read much of hers. What if after the first book you were like, yeah, it's fine, and, that, and then all you had was Mary McCarthy? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm prepared to take gambles on these things. And, you know, possi possibly that's the way to really get into a, a writer's work. You, you keep plugging away until you find the ones you really like. And I suppose if it all, you know, it was a disaster, I'll just get my Kindle out. Well, I think The Group is a book that is so entertaining and I really mm. I do recommend it. And also, you know, interesting to read alongside a sort of kind of modern version of it, Lara Feigl's The Group. Yes, it's um, so, last you know, year. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a kind of interesting thing. But I think also, Toby, what we should say on a desert, fantasy desert island, wouldn't it be great to have a kind of floating sort of mobile bookshop that perhaps came round once a week and you could sort of get a little, you could row out to it and perhaps, you know, that, that as this we're creating into a different fantasy. program that reminds me of another one. What's your, what's your fifth record? <laughs> Nobody ever says on that program when they say, what's your luxury? I'd say a shop. That's what I'd want, but nobody ever says that, do they? I think, I'm sure, so, I'm sure someone said a bookshop, but you're right, it's an all-purpose shop. <laughs> that would be a brilliant idea, wouldn't it? Can I have, yeah, can <laughs> I just, yeah. John Lewis, I don't always, all day long, I'd want John Lewis. Uh, anyway, that's We're, beside the point. So, we are um, digressing. After we are. you come back from, after you come back from your, of your exfiltrated, I imagine, by your family who are missing you desperately, uh, <laughs> Toby, uh, from this fantasy desert island. Who else on this kind of lit? Who, who's taken your eye as something you think well, is that's a, a good recommendation? A couple, of, a couple of people take my eye. I mean, this is not necessarily a book I want to read, but I was very interested in Joyce Carol Oates's um, decision to read. Uh, I'll read her excerpt briefly. A portion of my summer reading will be devoted to research into the extraordinary career and life of America's father of neurology, Silas Weir Mitchell most famous or infamous for being the highly respected physician who devised the hellish rescue that was the catalyst for Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, The Yellow Wallpaper. And she goes on and talks about the, the books she's gonna read around him. And what I particularly like about this is she, she, she ends by saying, there's no telling where this subject may lead, but no doubt to a surreal sort of quasi-historical fiction. And I like the sense you get there of Joyce Carol Oates, who is still indefatigably producing, you know, two novels a year, as far as I can gather, well into her 80s. And, the, you know, this is her writing process. She's she's taking these books on her summer holiday. And no doubt by next January, we will be 
getting proof copies of her new novel about Silas Weir Mitchell. So I thought it was quite a nice little insight into her process. Yes, I love that too. I thought, my God, you're on it again, JCO. <laughs> I thought, here, here we go. It was I really, I, absolutely, I've kind of, it was a, a chuckly moment though. It was when you, you, again, it's a sort of insight. And of course, this is partly also what happens when you read people's recommendations. You do get little glimpses into their lives, don't you? Yeah. I oh, love to, but yes, exactly. I love to think of Benjamin Markovitz reading Philip Larkin's A Girl in Winter recently. And I thought, what a juxtaposition of, of a sort of Anglo-American with somebody we think of as so, so, so English. And, that, that, you know, fascinating, really. And that's led him on to talking about Tessa Hadley. And mm. then I started thinking about Philip Larkin in concert with Tessa Hadley. And it, it's it's just very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, it really is. All it, everyone shoved up together in the same holiday bag. Um, Alex, whose whose bag would you um, be tempted to to sneak off with? Do you think? Well, you see, I I, I swear, I suppose you've got your own bag. Bit. Sorry, you but can't I've have got your my bag. own bag. But I did yeah. a little bit. I did a little bit of. I'm having one from hers, one from his, and I I love um, the Japanese novelist Mieko Kawakami, uh, and uh, Barbara King has recommended All the Lovers in the Night, which I haven't read. So that was something that I thought I I, I might want to take. I've mentioned uh, the Janet Malcolm that Caroline Moorhead recommended reading Chekhov. And then also really another reading project, actually. Nicholas Shulman talked about really getting to grips with the work of Percival yes. Everett. Not Ooh, a yes, novelist I'd yes. ever, ever read. And I thought, yeah, that's a really... That's so a really I, good idea. I've read a couple of his novels. Um, Erasure was one of them. Mm. Extraordinarily good. Um, and I'm not Sidney Poitier is another one. Um, and I've read that too. It's absolutely yeah, brilliant. He's, he's really, he's really brilliant, isn't he? He's been writing since the early '80s. He's, he's written about twenty novels, and he's sort of reasonably well known in some circles, but basically not particularly well known, particularly in the UK. And he's having a bit of a revival over here, as in some of his books that have never before appeared in the UK are being published here and I think it's great because he really should be better known he's a, he's a fascinating writer yes I thought I am not Sidney Poitier was so it was wasn't like anything else I'd ever read and it did immediately make you want to think oh, okay what else has he done mm. um yeah that that would be um what does she say um Nicholas Shulman says he's a writer of staggering gifts and the range of an inquisitive blue whale which is a good, a good, good way of, good Lord. of saying I mean, it. It's immediately made me think, what is an inquisitive blue whale like? You'd imagine them sort of just bumping up to you, kind of. Pretty anyway. inquisitive, I think. Yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty inquisitive. Lucy, we're going to have to turn this on to you, though. What are you going to be taking? Well, that was one of them, actually, I'm afraid. Well, it's not one of them because you, because she's she's sort of saying all of Percival Everett's work, but I would definitely uh, be interested in that. I'd quite like to, to have Andrew Motion's bag because he's chosen Elizabeth Lowry's The Chosen. Um, in fact, we, we had Elizabeth uh, on the podcast. But I haven't read the book yet and I very much want to. It's about yes, Thomas yes, Hardy's right. reaction to, to the death of his wife, Emma Hardy. Um which just sounds um, it just sounds brilliant and interesting and, and all of those things. Um, and I very much want to read and have not yet. You two probably have. You've read everything. The Last Days of Roger Federer by Jeff Dyer. Have you read it? I'm reading it and I'm really enjoying Aha. it. OK, uh, good. I haven't and I would like to. And she, yeah. but she, and she also. I have read though that the class SWAT puts her hand up. I have read one of the other books that she recommends, um, Elif Batiman's Either Or, which I hugely enjoyed. So, you loved, oh, good. I'm glad you loved it because yeah. I've been meaning to read that. Claire Loudon reviewed it for us last yes, month. Yes, she she was very very pro. It. Yeah, it's yeah. really and, it's really really good. And does one start with that one or the earlier one, The Idiot? Because it's a sort I, of a follow up to The Idiot, but you can read it separately. It is. You absolutely can read it separately. I would, especially since we know you're going to be four months on this desert <laughs> island. I would absolutely definitely uh, start with with the idiot. And I actually, to be honest, I might go back and read the, the Possessed. Her first book was nonfiction because she's just such a gifted writer. And sometimes, you know, the heart does occasionally sink at the kind of, you know, talks about her life in books sort of marketing line. But she mm. does it so, she's so brilliant at conjoining literature and life and working out this kind of alchemy and how people's lives can be shaped by books as well as all the other circumstances in their lives that they then bring to bear on reading those books. It's, she's a great, great, great writer. 
Okay, well, she's she's going in the bag as well. Um, mm. And can I have one more? Please, can I have one more for my for my eighth record? Mm. Is uh, Neil Stevenson's Regina Rini has chosen Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock. She says the weary techno prophet turns his side eye to climate change, which another um, sort of science fiction speculative fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson did with his last book, which I read which was it, I mean, it was quite a difficult read you know it wasn't it wasn't all fun but it was incredibly interesting and actually quite hopeful um and neil stevenson's really interesting he writes great big books alex if you they're they're you know it's seven eight hundred pages type thing uh, and i do think it's interesting that these people who were writing about colonizing mars and you know quite hard science fiction is what they were doing quite a lot of them are now turning to climate fiction basically, and having a look at at this planet, as it were, and saying, okay, what's going to happen? Is it yet called Cli-Fi? I'm afraid it is. It is. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately. I wonder if that's something we, and I'm sorry to, we mustn't end on a sort of, a sort of gloomy note, but I wonder if that's something that we should mention to Ian Sampson, who, I mean, Ian Sampson always makes me laugh, but the beginning Mm. of his little choice starts, Appalled, dismayed and disgusted at the general state of things, I am looking forward to spending my staycation this year with books that promise to plunge me deeper into despair. (laughs) And I salute that, um, Ian, even though I think, you know, throw Jilly Cooper's riders in there or something like that, you know, come on, cheer yourself up a bit. (laughs) It doesn't sound as though he's going to, does it? It doesn't really. No, he's chosen George Monbiot's Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which I think actually does offer some Mes- hope. There's a message of hope there, isn't there? An op- you know, an op- a solution, perhaps. I think so, yeah. He also says uh, Hannah White's Held in Contempt, which uh, Edward Dox talked about recently uh, on the podcast with great urgency and conviction. And that one I don't think is terribly hopeful. And then he says, to put the icing on the whole sorry cake... Dave Golson's Silent Earth averting the insect apocalypse. So that's not it's not the most it's not the most fun list, is it? Well, <laughs> I mean there are solutions. And I think even Hannah White what offers we're some after. solutions. So. <laughs> it's fun, really, what, what we need. I have to say, there's no insect apocalypse in my kitchen at the minute. But anyway, uh this heat wave, guys. Uh I know, yeah. I do like to think, as we see that, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times, very sort of narcissistically, really, books that have come up on the podcast uh, that have appeared, that now seems to have nudged people. Do you think we're, we are fulfilling our dream of being trendsetters and tastemakers, Lucy? Well, we can but dream, Alex. Not for us to say, is what I'm going to say. No, that that is for (laughs) others who will no doubt very kindly uh, agree with us. Uh, Right. (laughs) Or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> uh, and Toby, we've just got time before we go to ask what you will be taking when you're not stealing other people's bags. What will you be putting in your bag? Well, um, a couple of things, but I'm going to start off by breaking all the rules, which is that I'd like to mention a book that I've already read on my summer holidays and that isn't yep. out yet. <laughs> so that I is definitely I'm, breaking the rules. That's definitely yeah. breaking all the rules, but it's, so it's out in very early September. So, it, you know, late summer and actually going away in September is, is lovely. Um, if I, you know, if I didn't have small children and schools and things like that to worry about, I would definitely be trying to go on holiday in September. And I did go on a, on a holiday in May to Italy and I took this book with me it is called Dandelions and it is by the TLS podcast one and only Theolena Dutzi oh I um, have heard of her yes she's very good well, it turns <laughs> you're not out allowed to do that either but do tell us about no absolutely I mean private I will be all over this I'm going to hold up my hands of course you know Thea is a dear friend and dear colleague and she's wonderful but this book is utterly nothing to do with the fact that, it, that it's by Theolena Dutzi it is totally brilliant and actually the one of the highest bits of praise I can say about it is I completely forgot it was by Thea and I was just reading it as a book. It is about her family. It's sort of through the voice of her nonna, this, this woman in her mid-90s, reflecting on her long life and the families shuttling between Italy and the UK. It was a wonderful, you know, I, I was in Italy when I was reading it, so that was, that was wonderful. And it's about these different generations moving, moving from Italy, to, from the north of Italy to the north of Manchester, and the kind of social history around that. And it is so beautifully written. Um, dandelions I massively recommend it and uh, yes it's out early September please go and read it 
So that's well, one of my recommendations. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if I've got time for a quick other you one. You have, go on, um, go on. It, 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 one that won't get us in private eye for long. It won't get us in private eye. I'm desperate yeah. to read these. I, I know that sounds like log wrong, but it's, it's so good. Um, the... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's a, it's a book I've just started. It's a book of short stories. It's called God's Children Are Little Broken Things. It's out next month. It's by Arinze Kandu. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He is a Nigerian novelist, and I've just read the first two, or rather he's a Nigerian author, this is a book of short stories, and I've just read the first two. It's these beautiful, beautiful stories about gay love in Nigeria, um, you know, relationships, um, sort of Lagos life. It's really, really beautifully done. It comes garlanded with recommendations by people like Damon Galgut, Edmund White, Adam Hazlitt, and I'm really keen to take that onto my desert island and, and, and finish it in peace, as I mentioned. Brilliant. Well, yes, do think of us all alone on your desert island. He won't. He won't. (laughs) He won't. He'll be too busy reading those brilliant books and having a great time. (laughs) (laughs) See you soon, Toby, and thanks so much. Thank you. Still to come on the show, the great digital currency fraud of OneCoin. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Do you know your Bitcoin from your Ethereum? Your Polygon from your Tether? Is a Dogecoin made from actual Doges? What happens if you try to buy a cheese sandwich with any of them? Well, if you know the answer to these questions, you're on at least nodding terms with the complex world of cryptocurrencies. The rest of us might remain mystified, but also attracted to this peculiar culture, which seems to be filled with some of the most strange and charismatic characters. One such is Ruha Ignatova, the missing crypto queen with a whole podcast series of the same name devoted to her.
That podcast, created by Jamie Bartlett, is now a book, and Henry Hitchings has reviewed it for this week's paper. Henry, welcome. Nice to be here. Are you a cryptocurrency expert, or are you, like me, utterly bewildered, or are you in the middle somewhere? I'd say I'm in the middle somewhere. I mean, some years ago, I actually contemplated buying some Bitcoin um, when I was in a better situation financially than I find myself in now. And I worked out that if I'd bought the amount of Bitcoin uh, that I intended to buy at that time and that I'd sold at the top of the market, I would have made one and a half million pounds. Um, Wow, uh, really? Sorry. But but of course, first of all, I wouldn't have sold at the top of the market because I wouldn't have known where the top of the market was. I'd probably have sold out way before that, or I'd have forgotten all about it, which seems to be something that happens to a lot of people who buy crypto. Certainly a lot of people who bought cryptocurrencies early on, they forgot about them um, and then realised they were worth lots of money, which was rather a shock. But I mean, my point is, of course, it wouldn't have transpired like that. But occasionally I pinch myself. And that fundamentally seems to be what drives this entire world, the fear of missing out is absolutely central to it because everyone has a ridiculous story a bit like that one. So it's kind of FOMO currency, really. It's totally FOMO currency. Now, the thing is, of course, it's our game because if you had sold at the top of the market, you probably wouldn't be. I mean, I know you do it for the love of it. You probably wouldn't be here this morning talking to us. You'd probably be on a gorgeous yacht. But I, I could talk to you from a gorgeous yacht. I think probably <laughs> if, I, if I'd made a lot of money in cryptocurrency, I'd probably be even more enthusiastic about doing things for the TLS than I already am. Uh, you make a good point. I was just trying to make you feel better about it. But let's start with the real basics and go slowly for an ingenue like me. What exactly is a cryptocurrency? <laughs> so it's a digital currency that's secured by cryptography, which makes it pretty much impossible to counterfeit. Basically, cryptocurrencies are decentralized networks. They're based on blockchain technology. The blockchain is a distributed ledger, which is sort of held or enforced by a network of computers. The defining feature of cryptocurrencies is they're not issued by a bank, by any central authority. And that means that they aren't susceptible to for example, state interference. So this decentralized structure of cryptocurrencies is absolutely key. Um, And there are a number of uh, advantages, therefore, that they have. One is that um, you can do cheap, very fast money transfers. But I mean, obviously, (laughs) there are are some other problems that go with that. They're very attractive to criminals because, um, uh, you know, they're not subject to the same regulatory oversight as a conventional currency. So you, um, you could launder money really easily through crypto. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, yes, hopefully. It's, yeah, <laughs> I, right, I but, imagine. Because all TLS contributors have so much money to launder, after all, as we've, as we've discussed. Yes, and that is, that is a big problem. And indeed, uh, the woman at the centre of the OneCoin scandal, um, you say very attractively, Ruha Ignatova. I just thought of her as Ruja. Um, but Dr. Ruja, as she was known to her, her fans, may, if she's alive, currently be doing precisely that for all kinds of nefarious people in far-flung places because she would certainly know how to. But yes, there's a huge opportunity for laundering money. There's also an, a huge potential to derange conventional markets. Cryptocurrencies are highly volatile largely because the kind of people who buy them, you know, are not typical investors. Uh, They're people who hawkishly watch what's going on and respond to any tiny little flicker of sentiment. Is there a a fairly strong element of libertarianism? I I want to do what I want with my money. I don't want to be regulated. I don't want to be, as you say, interfered with by the state or anyone else. It's it's hugely like that. You could argue that um, cryptocurrencies are the ultimate expression of economic libertarianism. Uh, As it happens for... Dr. Ruja, uh, I don't think it was about that. Um, but I mean, she was capitalizing on other people feeling that way inclined. Well, I love the line very, very early on in your piece where you say, when she was younger, she just spent 
all night reading books about how to make vast amounts of money. And I did think that is the problem with me. I have not spent all night reading books about how to make money. I've spent all night reading novels. And that's that's where I've gone wrong and why I'm not Dr. Ruja. But that's what she wanted to do essentially, wasn't it? It wasn't a sort of either libertarian or ideological kind of no. thing. Although, although she played, she played on that. Just tell us a bit about her. Well, yes. I mean, some of the biographical details are a bit murky. She is Bulgarian by origin. She went to university initially in Germany. Um, her school friends from Bulgaria suggest that she was always very polished. She was the sort of person who even at school would always turn up with her hair perfectly done and her lipstick perfectly applied. She seemed very professional and businesslike, even as an adolescent. She was supposedly a, a stellar student. Um, and post-university, the story goes that she worked for the strategy consultancy firm McKinsey and also got a master's at Oxford University. These things were certainly integral to the publicity campaign that she later ran. Are they true? I, I haven't been able to find out. Jamie Bartlett, the author of this book, I think accepts that these things are true. I mean, she still has a LinkedIn profile, I should say, which I located with no difficulty whatsoever while writing uh, my review. I was curious. She's still there. And on her LinkedIn profile, it says that she worked at McKinsey and it says that she went to Oxford. But you know, one does wonder. Um, I'm not suggesting that either of those things would disqualify one from being a fraudster, potentially. Um, but of course, they're wonderful embellishments for the CV or wonderful baubles for the CV of someone who's looking to sound like they are running a blue chip investment. But she certainly, in adulthood, had a lot of exposure to business, to business innovation, to people creating startups. And one thought, you know, I want a piece of that. So in 2014, she invents something called OneCoin, which she also calls the People's Coin. Mm. How did she do what, what What happened then? And how did she launch it, as it were? Well, it's essentially just a, an enormous marketing operation if you want to launch a cryptocurrency. I mean, the, actually, the key thing to say is OneCoin wasn't a cryptocurrency. It was represented as a cryptocurrency, but it didn't have a blockchain. It didn't have one of these decentralized ledgers. It was actually just a, a giant Ponzi scheme, which was propagated through multi-level marketing. And she recruited people who had a lot of experience in multi-level marketing, or to use its less polite name, pyramid selling, uh, to go out and evangelize for it. And you know, the, the reality is if you get in very early on one of these pyramid schemes, you can make a hell of a lot of money. So a lot of people who had experience doing this kind of thing and knew the rewards that were potentially available thought, okay, you know, she's a very personable, smart seeming front woman here's an opportunity and they went out and they sold the notion that this was going to be the next thing in cryptocurrency and there were an awful lot of one might say gullible naive um uh, greedy uh, people there who suffer from FOMO who thought I have to pile into this and you know a lot of these people were seasoned investors with very diverse portfolios for whom this was just yet another punt but unfortunately, a lot of the people weren't that. They were, I mean, there's one of the people who pops up in Jamie Bartlett's book is a uh, guy in a slum in Kampala, Uganda, who sells his goats in order to buy 250, I think 250 euros worth of one coin. So there are all kinds of sad victims along the mm -hmm. way. There's no doubt that the marketing of it was pretty exciting. You know, these sort of jamborees were mounted all over the world, a lot of them in Southeast Asia, but also in London and the United States and uh, you know, plenty of other places. And um, Dr. Ruja herself was at the center of these and projected this image of sort of regal, you know, imperious majesty. Uh, and a lot of people get, got swept up in the fervor. There's something, um, it's like a sort of religious thing, really. Um, so all this, I mean, all this will be going on sort of in real life there would be you know not just virtually there would be these great kind of parties and stuff uh, in which I think you say you she she arrives at one with Alicia Keys girl on fire kind of booming 
away. But then the rest of the marketing operation, if it's reaching people all over the world, is kind of tentacular and exists uh, in the ether. That's right. But actually, there was, you know, a lot of this is about word of mouth. That's the way in which it's, you know, character characteristic of the multi-level marketing scheme. You know, pyramid selling uh, involves selling products to your friends and to your family and recruiting other people to do the same. And your recruits and the people they recruit and so on, they become your downline, your sales network. So, yes, there were these very spectacular events, but actually there were... If you imagine a sort of tree, there were lots of little little branches at the far end where there are still in-person, uh, you know, marketing. They maybe may not have been extravaganzas. They may have been quite humdrum by comparison. But it, so much of this was done in person. And that's how you, re, you know, the charismatic cell. I mean, apparently there was a generic PowerPoint presentation for one coin which if you looked at it uh, closely was pretty crummy. Uh, but if you have people coming up on stage to sort of massive pop anthems um, and everyone behaving a bit like they're at a sort of, uh, you know, religious rally, then I suppose one can see how people get duped. They just get swept along. Well, it's, I, it's, I would, um... I must say, I, I mean, I, I, I am the most, I'd be just, you know, selling everything at this point. <laughs> thank it, it thank sounds... God I've never got into it. Sounds like a, in a way, a very old-fashioned approach to a very almost, you know, brand new sort of currency. I think that's right. I mean, when you read about this uh, or hear about it, the sort of thing that comes to mind is tulip fever. I know that the reality of tulip fever is a little different from the um, the, the sort of received understanding of what happened. It reminds one of Charles Mackay, and you know that book of his that I'm going to mangle the title of, but the uh, Extraordinary Madness and Popular Delusions of Crowds or whatever it's called, that sort of seminal book about the way that this contagion spreads. But yes, it, the mechanism by which one coin prospered was actually a very simple word of mouth one. Um, it's a kind of roll up, roll up, get your... Get your Bitcoin here with a very charismatic and, and believable front woman. That's right. And of course, one of the things about Bitcoin is that there were and are finite quantities of it. So, you know, for people who don't have any, there's a sense that, oh, you know, I missed my chance. I mean, OK, just recently it's tanked. But um, during the period of, of massive inflation in its value, it looked as though if you hadn't got into it, you'd missed out. So you had to jump on the next thing. And there's been this extraordinary proliferation of these opportunities. What's the interesting thing that you said right at the beginning is that one coin wasn't actually a cryptocurrency mm. and it didn't have this essential blockchain, the, the, yeah. the means by which it can't be counterfeited or hacked or the rest of it. Why didn't it? Why did she expose it to that uh, ability just to collapse, which is sort of sort of what happened, at least to her, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's a curious question. I think it was, um, she almost got swept up in her own hype. But I think what she imagined was that she could start it, almost like market it as a car with no engine, and then later on retrofit the engine. <laughs> um, in 2016, OneCoin tried to recruit a guy called Bjorn Berke, Bjerke, I think his name was Bjorn Berke, a Norwegian expert on blockchain, uh, to sort of remedy this fairly significant emission. And I mean, he, he just couldn't, you know, I think they made him a very attractive offer, but he couldn't really believe it. He thought, well, I'm not sure I want any part of that because it just sounded too completely bonkers. But there was always this idea that they could sort the problem out later. Which I think sounds rather familiar from the world of business and indeed government. So what was it that sparked Dr. Ruja's downfall, if it was indeed a downfall? Because OneCoin is still being traded, isn't it? And, and she's not apparently around, but it still is. It, it is around. I mean, I think, um, you know, most savvy investors are aware of the reality, but you can still find promotional operations in some of the murkier waters of social media, targeting people in countries where information is less freely available, poorer countries, which is pretty disturbing. I mean, quite a lot of different things happened to result in her um, 
downfall. But the single biggest thing was that she had a relationship with a man called Gilbert Armenta, who was an American guy who was involved in some of the more sort of shady finagling of the finances around this. And he ended up being pursued by the FBI and he turned informant, I think I'm right in saying, which then meant that the FBI were able to record conversations between him and her where she said all kinds of things that didn't really square with the public face that she was presenting. And actually, by the time this came to light, there was an awful lot of chat online about how it was a Ponzi scheme. And lots and lots of people were saying, you know, were clamouring, saying we want our money back, weren't able to get it back. And then we're clamouring even more loudly. And she, in 2017, in the autumn of that year, I think thought, I've had enough of this and hopped on a plane from Sofia to Athens. And we understand boarded a yacht and hasn't been seen for nearly five years. There are lots of speculations swirling about to do with what might have become of her. And Jamie Bartlett, author of The Missing Crypto Queen, has been pretty assiduous about trying to run her to ground. He obviously hasn't managed to do so, but you know he's gone out on the ground to follow up leads that he's been provided with because inevitably there have been sightings or suspected sightings, but then also people say, well, she might have had cosmetic surgery to change what she looks like. So there are, you know, there's a, it's a great opportunity for speculation and conspiracy theory so alongside you know the story of, of cryptocurrencies in general and this one in particular, this is also a, a Cherche La Femme story. It is a kind of mystery story and a disappearance. Now, as you were saying, it's been a hugely popular podcast. It's mm. become a book. How is that transition? You, you made a really interesting point about the transitions, about things that are platform agnostic, yeah. really being platform promiscuous. Does it work? here, I wonder, does the transition work? I mean, I would say not really. There are some respects. I mean, the the story is very pacily told, as you would probably expect, of something that originated as a podcast. The problem is it feels a bit schematic. You've got 35 episodes, in effect, all of about the same length, each of which has to end on some kind of cliffhanger, often a little bit hammy. And what you don't get is some of the things that books do well that maybe podcasts aren't so disposed to do. Uh, more sort of contextualization and rumination and exploration. And I think also on the page, there are aspects of the style that jar that aren't problematic in a podcast. I'm not suggesting that the podcast was taken and just dumped on the page. But I think when you've had a really successful podcast, and this was very successful, you think, well, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But actually, the prose in the book is not, it's not very vivid. It falls back on certain kind of tropes. There's a lot in it about the, the nature of Ruja Ignatova's glamorous lifestyle and a lot of really um, insipid adjectives. You know, there's a lot about how luxurious and prestigious and exclusive things are. You read uh, the prestigious McKinsey and Company, her uh, prestigious address in Knightsbridge, this exclusive hotel, this, and there's a lack of that animating colour that you want when you're reading. And some of the little sort of aid memoir that seem to have survived from its podcast inc- incarnation, there's a sort of almost like a Homeric formulaic epithet thing going on you know that in the same way that he talks about the wine dark sea so we always have to hear about dr ruja's bright red lipstick and actually i can see that when you're listening to a podcast over you know many weeks that kind of callback is quite reassuring but when you're reading a book in a matter of a few hours you think yes yes we know this already so there are things that that are legacies from the podcast which i don't think um are particularly helpful and of course its incarnation as a book is just one stage on its journey because it's going to be I think a film or possibly one of these um, multi-part things on a streaming service I saw it suggested somewhere that Kate Winslet will play Dr Ruja I, I don't know if that's actually the case but I can see some of the rationale for that. Um, so some 
it's very much like our own podcast really it's what i'm hearing it's going to be made into a major feature film with yeah hollywood, absolutely hollywood, and, hollywood and a-listers i think kate winslet has indeed expressed interest although she's declined to say whether it'll be you or me lucy but who, i think we can't talk she'll... about that anymore right i think now. We, i think we can't well i mean talking about about that idea of, of writing i mean it's I'd say the only other thing I've read about Bitcoin in book form is Andrew O'Hagan's uh, piece on Bitcoin's founders and the Satoshi affair. And of course, what he did was also ruminate, as you say, and explore the idea of kind of identity and reality and the idea of one person, a sort of embodied real person operating in this kind of cybersphere. And I'm wondering if really books like that still very much do have something to offer that this kind of book doesn't. Yeah, I think this book majors on, uh, you know, making the story exciting. But actually, in terms of the kind of psychological depths, we don't really get into it. And there is a fairly obvious reason for that, which is that the author's not had direct access to the protagonist. But um, I mean, one of the things which is quite puzzling about the book is that the author seems to be quite impressed by, by Ignatova. I mean, he refers to her as a visionary um, more than once. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff about how clever she is. And actually, when you boil it down, I mean, the scam was very successful, but there was something really quite crude about it. And I'm not sure that someone who defrauded people out of billions and billions of pounds should be regarded as a visionary. Mm. Um, But we're sort of left with that. And, you know, I, I found myself wanting to know more about all of the characters, actually, the world of the fraud is well delineated, but the kind of what lies beneath, we don't really get into. A final question for you, Henry, just if somehow uh, Dr. Ruja did materialize or was found by someone, what would happen to her? Would she be immediately arrested? Has she actually committed crimes? Yes, she would be be arrested. But what's rather laughable is that um, what I used to think was called Interpol, but I think now maybe called Europol, has a reward uh, available for uh, information leading to her capture. The reward is 5,000 euros, which doesn't really I mean, you know, excite me enough to get on my um, uh, you know, private jet to go and find her. Um, well, it's half uh, a tank of petrol these days. So, I mean, they really <laughs> have to up their game if they want yeah, to surely. Exa- exactly. But no, no, she, I mean, she is definitely a fugitive from justice and the justice would be extremely severe. Her brother, who seems to have been a kind of a useful idiot who got roped into things, a very different sort of person from her. I don't think he's been sentenced yet, but I mean, potentially faces some quite devastating custodial term for his offences. And he's not the mastermind behind the thing. He's just a sort of adjunct. So, you know, there are very powerful reasons for her to be um, evading justice. And she also has the wherewithal because, for example, in addition to all her other wealth, she owns, I think I'm right in saying, $9 billion worth of Bitcoin. And I really do mean Bitcoin because of an ingenious trade that she affected at one point. So she's not short of money to be able to evade the clutches of the authorities, but there are lots of sort of murky questions about exactly what terms she's doing that on. Is she sunning herself on a super yacht somewhere, or is she in fact being held captive by extremely dangerous criminal plutocrats whose bidding she is doing? I guess that's podcast series two, isn't it? It's a, it's a story that hasn't ended. Um, sadly, it has to end here for us now. I mean, I, I'm leaving with lots of questions still, which is exactly the way you want to feel. Henry, thank you so much. Are you off to look at your stocks and, and shares in Ethereum and Dogecoin, or are you just back to the, the daily grind? Um, I'm going to be cleaning up my daughter's play area. <laughs> oh lord if only you'd sold at the top of the market you'd have somebody to do that for you thank you so so much for joining us today we really appreciate it it's my pleasure have time for this week our thanks go to toby lishtig and henry hitchings and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy 
We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.